life, the journey to a good career is rarely straight. Instead, it's made up of a fair number of happy accidents. A friend of a friend, a chat over a cup of coffee, a teacher or a mentor taking a special interest. All of these intangibles add to the network of social capital that helps us gain access to and progress in the job market. Internships are frequently critical to gaining work skills and access to professional networks that would otherwise remain opaque. This is especially a challenge for students from disadvantaged backgrounds who don't have access to the business and professional networks, which help create access to good jobs. Today, we're going to hear about First Workings, an organization that helps bring young, talented, socioeconomically diverse workers into paid internships with prestigious New York City financial, medical, and media firms. To tell us the story, I'm joined by the founder and chairman of First Workings, Kevin Davis. Davis's experience of the finance sector is built from the ground up. After starting as a Chicago Board of Trade runner, Davis worked in London and New York-based financial markets. In 2008, he founded First Workings, starting with internship programs and then expanding into training and mentorship opportunities. Together, we discuss the inequalities and opportunity for the young people First Workings serves, the importance of social capital, relationships at work, diversity in the workplace, and vocational discernment. Kevin Davis, thank you for joining us on Hardly Working. Good morning. Pleasure to have you here. You've done some very interesting work. It seems like uh, at least two careers, and we, we want to hear about both of those. But I'd like to have you walk us through just a little bit of your own career journey. Where did you come from? What did you do? And then where did you go after you had your career in the finance sector? So let's start there. Well, I started out in England. A lot of people do a, a gap year between uh, high school and college, but my parents wouldn't let me do that. Uh, and the deal was that if I managed to graduate, I would be allowed to do my gap year then. And so after I graduated college, uh, I managed to get a, a student um, working visa in the United States. And my family happened to be in the menswear business. And I got a job in Chicago, um, a job which I really didn't like. But uh, my roommate worked at a place called the Chicago Board of Trade, which uh, in those days was an enormous exchange with people in uh, lots of uh, colored jackets, trading uh, treasury bonds, corn, wheat, uh, currencies, and precious metals. Um, and as soon as I walked into this exchange, I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm home. There was so much going on. It was so exciting. And I thought, I've got to get a job here. Now, in 1982... So can, I, can I interrupt just for a second? What, what was your degree in? Uh, my degree was in politics and government. So okay. it had absolutely nothing to do with uh, Wall Street. And I will tell you, actually, parenthetically, that most Wall Street companies don't necessarily go for uh, uh, graduates with finance degrees they're looking for a workforce which has a, you know, varied educational disciplines uh, and, and different interests. But So is, uh, is that, do you think that's still true today? I'm sorry to interrupt, but I really am interested in this particular topic. Is that still true today, do you think? Because I keep reading about, you know, the, the finance majors and, uh, uh, and economics, uh, people have MBAs and so on you know, landing these huge salaries in their first uh, job out of college is, is, are you saying that someone can walk into a firm with a deep interest in finance, but not necessarily a technical background in it and be successful? I am. Uh, and provided that uh, that graduate has uh, a willingness and an ability to learn, 
um, then they are welcomed into those institutions. Of course, um, I would say more than half of those of their uh, recruits do have a finance or finance related degree. Uh, but increasingly, um, uh, financial companies are interested in people who are very strong in math and STEM. Mm-hmm. Because whereas in my day in Wall Street, um, you didn't necessarily need those to be successful, to have customers, to even trade, in the modern world where individuals are competing with uh, algorithms uh, and super quant computers, um, having uh, the ability to write software um, or to interact with technology uh, uh, in a more general sense uh, are very highly valued skills. That's fascinating. Please, uh, please continue. Yeah. So, so you, anyhow, you, I, I, I managed to, in 1982 in Chicago, it was the furthest thing from an international city. And so I walk in with my British accent and I applied for five jobs and I got five job offers. And uh, not because I'm a fantastic person. I'm sure it was because of my accent. Um, and uh, I got a job at the very bottom rung, which was as a runner on the exchange. And I literally used to have to crawl into the trading pits with all these enormous Chicagoans and they would hand me their trading cards and then I'd sort of crawl out the pit and key punch them into a computer. Anyway, um, I did that for uh, about six months and eventually um, the company I worked for by sheer coincidence was bought by a British company. My work uh, permit came to an end and they offered me a job back in London where I worked uh, the same company for about three years. Um, it was pretty tough. You know, my first day, uh, I was I'm Jewish, and I was given a a sort of racial nom- uh, uh, nickname, which stuck with me for much of my career, as it happens. Um, and it was a very tough place. We had to work 14 hours a day. There was a lot of abuse and the sorts of things that today, you know, you would not be tolerated. But I always thought, well, I'm being paid to learn, so I'll put up with it. Um, anyhow, uh, I then get headhunted uh, into a money broker uh, whose uh, core business was um, matching um, borrowers and depositors into bank, uh, exclusively between banks. Uh, and they were interested in launching into the new world of financial futures, which was basically treasury bond futures, currency futures, euro dollar futures. Um, and I helped uh, build this business. Um, and eventually, um, they put me in charge. And I, I worked there for five years. It was lots and lots of fun. Uh, in the uh, 80s, uh, Wall Street was definitely uh, one of the best places to be. And then uh, after about five years with them, I was then headhunted into a, a very, very large commodities company called EDNF Man, um, which was uh, a combination of uh, cocoa, coffee, sugar, classic commodities, but it had also uh, developed a very small brokerage business and a, a an increasingly important hedge fund business. So I was put, uh, I was asked to build this financial futures business, and uh, we went from about number twenty five on the London Exchange uh, to number one. Um, I was then given a global responsibility for that product. And again, we managed to um, get to the number one spot on virtually every exchange. Around uh, 1999, um, having gone public uh, two or three years earlier, the company split up. 
And so uh, funds and brokerage, which uh, I was part of, uh, were separated from the old commodities business. And I was called into my boss's office. I had no idea what was coming. Uh, I'd actually warned my wife that I thought it's possible I was going to get fired that day because he'd asked to see me the uh, following day. I had no idea. And he said, uh, I'm leaving this division to go and run the commodities division. And you're now in charge right now. So I found myself in charge of a, uh, a global business uh, which ran the gamut from energy futures, com uh, classic commodity futures, metals, currencies, and of course, financial futures. And uh, over the next um, five years, um, I managed to take profits from about 25 to $30 million a year to $275 million a year. How old were you when this, when this change happened? Um, at that point, uh, I, uh, I was about 30 years old by this stage. So you were, you were well-seasoned, uh, very experienced. I mean, that's not really, I'm being sarcastic, of course, that's really remarkable to be put in charge of something yeah. so consequential at such a young age. Well, I think we all suffer from imposter syndrome. And right. so when I got the job, I was like, oh, my God, now I've got this job. What the heck am I going to do? Um, and, um, you know, it was a, a wonderful experience building this business. We did 15 acquisitions. Uh, interestingly, uh, the last major acquisition we did was a company called Refco, which uh, actually uh, subsequently went uh, bankrupt. And um, we... Uh, we were on the end of a of a an unwelcome bid from them. They tried to buy the brokerage uh, division out of my company, and then when they had their financial problems, uh, I said to my colleagues, "Look, we have to buy them because if we don't buy them, a private equity company is going to buy them, and then they're going to come back for us." So um, you know, I said we're either going to be a shark or a tuna, and so we better be a shark. So we bought this company um, and then uh, around 2006, and then uh, in 2007, uh, we went public on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, I rang the bell, which was a pretty uh, cool moment. Um, and um, we set fair right at the beginning of the financial crisis. Uh, we were the second largest um, financial spin out, uh, MasterCard being the largest. Um, and uh, we literally walked into uh, the eye of the Un storm. Obviously, Stones went first and then Lehman Brothers. And uh, there were some pretty rock and roll days. Yeah. Wow. That is really something. What incredible timing. Um, I should, I, Brent, Brent I, sh I should actually tell you that uh, also along the way, uh, I guess the thing that really uh, I cut my teeth on was Enron. Yeah, um, because we were the largest energy derivatives company in the world, and uh, we um, managed to extricate ourselves from this immense relationship and with complicated positions. Probably the largest um, uh, listed derivatives position anyone had in the world, uh, and we ended up owing them money at the end of it, which I think probably made us. Uh, unique. Very few people found themselves in that position. Um, but that was probably the sort of hardest uh, month of my life. But we uh, we got out of it. Um, and mm. um, actually, the, the genesis of us getting out before anyone else 
was when uh, I had a lunch with the chief dealer there who said to me, oh, you know, we'd love to build a relationship, but you need to give us more credit. And I thought, wait a sec, you know, we borrow at 1% over and we're going to lend to you at 2% over. If you're Enron, you can borrow cheaper than we can. So why would you come to us? And it was at that point I thought something's not quite right. And so probably three months before their uh, bankruptcy, we we had started already to extricate ourselves from that relationship. My goodness. Okay, well, that is fascinating history, and it's only part one. Um, we're going to get into mentoring because that's your that's your focus now. Just give us a little bit of a sense for how you got interested in mentoring as a topic, career mentoring, and then who were your mentors? How did I get into it? I first of all, one of the things I had once, like when I left Wall Street in two thousand and eight, I I spent some time at NYU doing a master's degree again in uh, politics, and then I taught at NYU for a little while, and then uh, a friend of mine had started this organization in London, and they and they set up internships for high school students between their what we call lower six and upper six, but here is the junior and senior year. But their internships were, you know, stacking shelves and working in, in department stores and that kind of stuff. And I thought, well, you know, I, I have enough social capital myself um, to come up with internships in a whole variety of different industries. But I didn't want to simply create an internship program which um, – didn't increase people, broaden horizons and didn't give people the chance to understand that they had a place in the room. And it was from that uh, internship organization, which still is the, the at the core of what we do, that the mentorship program evolved. So let me and ask you, let me ask you, did you mentioned early on that you had experienced some abusive behavior in the workplace? Uh, and I imagine that felt like exclusion sometimes. But is that what is that part of the story? Your your personal experience? I think it's part of the tapestry. Um, one of the things that really struck me when I was at work was that every intern we hired looked exactly the same, and there was a very good reason for that. Was the interns that we hired um, were customers' kids, uh, colleagues' kids. Even rivals' kids, we, you know, we would say, "I'll hire your son if you hire mine." Um, and I say "son" because almost all of the interns were white males, um, and it was sort of quite startling that in the front office area of our business, uh, it really was almost exclusively white. Um, although we had some very senior people, and I'm very proud that um, the leaders of our uh, IT and our settlements uh, departments, which are critical in, in a uh, Wall Street company, um, were both uh, black, it really was that they were really were the exception. And so um, I was also mindful of the fact that the demographics of the workforce are changing so quickly that uh, organizations really need to figure out ways to get access to uh, an increasingly large proportion of the workforce who are people of color. Okay, so you had this passion around uh, or interest in mentoring. You went back, got your master's degree, and you started something called First Workings. So tell us about that 
what its mission is uh, and how uh, you go about accomplishing it. Okay, so uh, our core mission is to really be a a bridge between uh, companies who are seeking diversity and students who are seeking opportunity. Um, We arrange um, high-quality internships, always paid because unpaid internships are another barrier to underserved communities. And uh, initially, we provided a limited amount of training uh, because Zoom didn't exist and because the schools we work with who are all committed to excellence um, said, we love to work with you. It's a phenomenal program, but you can't interfere with our own pedagogic um, prerogatives, i.e. education comes first. You can't take kids out of the classroom. So the amount of training we could do was quite limited. Um, But um, then we would... uh, arrange these amazing internships with amazing companies. And in preparation for that, we had this limited training, but we would give our students um, work attire if they needed it. You know, if you go and work at a a Lazard Frere or at a Morgan Stanley, you know, you need to wear a suit and and a shirt and maybe not a tie anymore, but certainly you need to be properly suited and booted. And, um, we would provide clothing for you know whatever the appropriate clothing that was necessary. Critically, we give all our students a twenty dollar a day uh, lunch stipend, which is in the form of a prepaid visa card. And the idea there is for kids to build social capital, create relationships, so that if a colleague says, "Hey, we're all going out for coffee after work," or "We're all having a sandwich at lunch," our kids can participate in that because it's those interactions at work which enable you to acquire a mentor and not all mentors necessarily need to be the ceo of the corporation although in many cases um, that is the case Um, but it's a very important derivative of that internship experience is that the students will acquire a mentor They'll also get letters of recommendation, which they can use for college. And if you imagine a kid from Harlem has a letter of recommendation from a senior partner at a major law firm or a major investment bank or advertising agency, you know, that's very, very powerful. Like, who is this kid? How did they manage to get such a such an internship experience? Now, so so how many how many kids uh, annually? Well, each year we grow. Um, about 300 kids have now been through our program. Uh, this year, we're expecting to work with between 75 and 100 kids, depending on how many kids make it through our application process. Mm. Because of Zoom, we are now, first of all, last year we switched from, uh, I should say last year and the year before, we switched from uh, internships to mentorships, and we dramatically uh, increased the amount of training we did, and we could do that over Zoom, which, of course, people weren't aware of before the pandemic, but all of the students we worked with were quite familiar with by the time uh, we got to the summer of 2020. Can I ask, so, a, can I ask another question about that? How do you, what, what are your criteria, your screening criteria for acceptance to the program? Well, first of all, that the, the initial screening is that we work with uh, specific schools. 
So we don't, it's not open to every student in Manhattan. It's only open uh, to students who are at the schools that we work with. We work with 13 schools. Mm-hmm. Um, students uh, apply online, uh, and it's not an onerous application because the students we work with are all studying for ACTs, SATs, and Regents exams, so we don't want to labor them with enormous amount of work. Um, But we ask a few short answer questions. We ask them about their demographics, what their extracurriculars are. Now, there are some kids that can't do extracurriculars because they've got home responsibilities. They might take care of uh, siblings or older relatives. Um, But we take all of these things into account. And then uh, we accept um, a number of students into the program. Uh, And then they have two uh, training sessions, interactive training sessions, uh, which take place in February and March. And then depending on how they perform in those training sessions, um, we either just give them training only or we give them training and an internship or mentorship if if, uh, that's all that's available. So what sort of characteristics are you looking for then? We're looking for uh, students who are hungry, who are inquisitive, um, who are uh, who are punctual, respectful, uh, and have, um, for want of a better term, a desperation to be successful, mm. uh, and inquisitiveness. The sort of students that, that we work with um, uh, all know how to sort of treat one another with respect. Uh, are respectful to the people who we introduce them to. I mean, it's critical to us that we send great students to the companies we work with. Because if we send them a student who isn't great, isn't interested, isn't committed, turns up late for work, may not turn up at all, um, they won't ask us, they won't let us send them anyone next year. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's very, very interesting. Um, You know, you look at other kind of successful programs that try to move, you know, move people along a career ladder. And almost always there is this, there's a pretty high standard for getting in, Um, you know, that you do have to have not just, um, you know, a, a, you know, it's not just your math scores or your, or your ability to write, but this capacity for Either you've already got the social skills or you have a, a capacity for learning those kinds of skills. Um, it's almost always the case. And I, I I don't know how to get around it. I don't even know if we should try to get around it. Um, you know, that we have to we have to start somewhere uh, in disadvantaged communities uh, in, in sort of opening these opportunities. If I could just uh, add that the. Really, what we're looking for in a in an applicant is hunger, inquisitiveness, and all the things I described. But not all those students have the social skills necessary to be successful in an internship or a mentorship. And so those students remain in the program. And by mm-hmm. the time they get through our training, they will have those skills. Yeah. Because you know, in, when we first started, we you know, once a student didn't make it through the interview, we was, that was it. We'd say goodbye. But then you know, we we had that sort of aha moment, and we realised, wait a sec, these are phenomenal students, great characters, and they are precisely the students 
who actually need our training the most. Mm. And so um, most of many of the students that come to us don't have those social skills. Mm. But as I say, by the time we get to the end, they do. And I should tell you that um, our relationship with the student doesn't just end with that internship. Once they join our alumni program, we have a, a bunch of different partnerships to help them through that final year of high school. We work with Columbia University Teachers College. Uh, they provide uh, help with the SATs and also with college essays. And crucially, um, they offer mentoring to students in their first year of college. And that is critical because one of the statistics which is shocking is that 95% of first-generation inner-city kids who go to college do not graduate. And, you know, you're going to hear, we all hear, oh, uh, XYZ major Ivy League school. Uh, if your family earns less than $100,000, uh, it's a free ride. But you'll never hear those colleges say, what percentage of those kids actually make it to graduation? And there's, you know, we could fill a whole podcast talking about the various alienating factors that lead mm -hmm. to students dropping out. Mm -hmm. But if you have a mentor to guide you through that first year, it makes all the difference. So in your program, you come in, you've got, you're, you're trying to build sort of the general social capital that you talked about in terms of the lunch stipend, you know, making sure that they've got a resource there to connect to non, I would gather these are not, not like the managers, but the other kind of workers in the, uh, in the office. And then you've got them assigned to a one mentor who is responsible for doing uh, or implementing the rest of the program how does that how does that work well the interestingly um a requirement of our program during when we're doing internships is that the students do get to meet the chief executive or someone extremely senior as part of the process now there are some great stories uh, of this we we had one kid who worked at a major white shoe law firm um who uh, built up such an incredible relationship with the partner she worked with, she was going to apply to um, a, a very good but not um, particularly well-known and not particularly uh, auspicious college. And he said, no, 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 you've got to apply to Duke. My friend is, is now head of admissions, and I know how you can go about getting a, a scholarship. And so all of a sudden, uh, this student was able to leverage off his social capital. And to this day, they remain in touch. He's very much her mentor. Um, and so it isn't just uh, people who are at the lower level, but those people are important too, because yeah. they can tell you, oh, you know, there's a job opening at XYZ company, or uh, have you thought about this business? Or, oh, you're thinking about going into that industry? I know someone in that industry. Uh, and so all of those things are, are crucial. The mentoring component of our, of our uh, organization really got turbocharged during COVID mm. because now uh, we were able to have access. So most of my contacts are the CEOs of these companies, um, and then the students work with people um, one level below and more junior as well. But during the pandemic, CEOs and very senior people, uh, they had the time to actually talk to our students. And so the level of 
mentor that our students had in terms of their seniority increased a great deal. That is really that is really quite astonishing to me. I mean, what we heard during the pandemic was people working more hours being more productive. Uh, but you're saying they also the pandemic created a space uh, for these kinds of interactions. That's kind of surprising to me. I would have thought that they would have been distracted trying to keep their their immediate responsibilities under control um, in in those circumstances. I mean, one thing to keep in mind was that in the in the midst of the pandemic, we had the whole uh, the racial awakening that still taking place, but was really um, mm. taking hold uh, in 2020. And so we were dealing with a universe of senior people who were desperate to find ways to themselves uh, be part of solutions to That's these fantastic. issues. Fantastic. Continue. Tell us more about how Zoom changed. First workings. Well, uh, Zoom enabled us obviously to dramatically increase our training, uh, inter-office etiquette, um, how to do a water cooler tour, elevator pitches. I, you've got like thirty seconds in an elevator to sell yourself to someone. How do you do it? We train them in that internet etiquette, responding to emails, how to respond to an email, how to respond to a calendar invite, all of that kind of stuff. We then added other components like financial literacy, which Goldman Sachs provided, teaching kids about credit cards. I didn't know, for example, that when you get a credit card for the first six months, you're supposed to pay it off in full, and you should never use more than 30% of your credit limit in that first six months. And if you do uh, do those things, you know, you spend up the limit and you pay the minimum payment, um, you automatically get a, a ding against your credit. Um, teaching kids uh, that borrowing money on a credit card is the worst possible way to, to, to borrow money, teaching them about different kinds of loans, the importance of uh, credit scores and FICA scores um, to their whole life. You know, when you want to buy a car or you want to rent an apartment, those things are critical. I mean, obviously it goes without saying when you want to get a, a mortgage. We also were able, because of Zoom, to have a whole bunch of different industry panels. So uh, uh, we actually had a panel last week, which was very senior executives, including uh, two, uh, one chief executive and one chairman of major investment banks. That couldn't have taken place without Zoom. You couldn't, mm. The students couldn't um, do their homework and also travel into Manhattan um, and you know, take part in a, in a panel which could end at sort of 7.38 and do their homework, you know, uh, not to mention the commute back and forth. But with Zoom, um, they're able to take an hour, hour and a half out of their evening um, and listen and participate in these panels. And uh, we have panels, uh, medical panels, um, the head of brain surgery, for example, at Lenox Hill, um, he uh, was able to give insults into his pathway to getting where he is. Interestingly, when he provides internships, he allows his interns to scrub up and stand in and watch him doing brain surgery. Um, and so these are um, uh, the, the, the addition of Zoom. Uh, allowed us to really expand the universe of different industries that our that our students were able to see, and you know, um, people love talking about themselves and about their industry, and so it 
isn't hard to find people uh, who want to participate in these panels. Just before this call, um, I was talking to a major media company who uh, wants us to introduce them to interns all the way from high school through college and after, and who are providing a whole bunch of different panels because today, uh, um, internet, uh, sorry, advertising, you know, runs the gamut of all kinds of different things, data analysis, digital marketing, uh, and all different disciplines, which aren't normally linked to what you used to see uh, in a show like Mad Men. Kind of a tangentially related question. You know, a lot of people who've been studying the impact of remote work express concern about the limits that it, it imposes on entry-level employees, that it's harder to get connected as a new hire into a business and to learn the culture of that organization in a remote environment. And I'm just wondering, does your, do you think your experience actually says that's, that's not quite right, that in fact, a remote environment has certain advantages to it? Or was that kind of a, just a function of the pandemic itself? Well, I think uh, what we do is is different to starting a new job. And in my own view, um, I would think this is it's a really difficult way to begin a career yeah. doing it online. I mean, one of the things about the improvements in productivity, which there hasn't been enough anal- uh, analysis over, uh, you know, you're seeing lots of people leaving jobs. You know, I don't know the extent to which that's people leaving the service industry uh, into other industries, but starting a job online is a very difficult way to build relationships. And we don't know the extent to which uh, improvements in productivity are linked to the fact that most people who are on these Zoom calls knew each other before the pandemic. They had a relationship already. And so now instead of uh, sitting around an office together, they're on Zoom. But to the extent to which a new recruit um, can get embedded into the culture of a corporation Personally, I'm, I'm, I'm quite doubtful about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that a young uh, person starting out, if the company offers them the chance to come in uh, and work in the office, they should grab it. Uh, right. Because, you know, I, I've been around places where there are mergers and acquisitions. And, you know, if you've only got a relationship with somebody on Zoom, it's, you know, that person is the most likely person to lose their job if there is a merger or acquisition. Why? Because you don't have a personal relationship with them. And once you've had the conversation, you just click leave meeting and it's over. So I think, you know, I've always believed that it's an employee's job to make themselves indispensable to a company. It's not the company's job to make them indispensable. Um, And one of the ways you do that is by being in and around the office. You know, another critical thing is that you don't get to have, it's not just water cooler talk. You're not present during uh, various interactions and conversations. So if there's a sort of brainstorming, which ordinarily a new recruit might be sitting in on, uh, but it's taking place kind of informally on Zoom, no one's going to say, oh, look, wait a moment, let's just grab up... Um, Johnny or or Sally and make sure that they're in on this meeting. It's just not going to happen. And so it's the absence of those interactions 
um, which I think makes it very hard for someone starting out. Yeah, I mean, it's just it it feels uh, it just feels like a bit of a contradiction, right? That um, that this would be good for for students in your intern in an internship and mentoring setting, but not good for hiring youngish <laughs> full-time staff who are coming in to the firm uh, that that for some reason that that uh, you know that it's enough different uh, that it just doesn't necessarily translate. It's good for good for first working participants, not so great for you know people coming in uh, as full-time hires worth noodling over why that uh, why that is I, I totally agree with you. I think those informal contacts, getting to know people, becoming part of a community, for lack of a better word, a work community, um, is essential um, to long-term success. But I'm awfully glad that for these interns, it hasn't, uh, that has turned out not to be the case. No, and that's largely because there's a a sort of finite period of the the formal mentorship. And um, after the formal mentorship has finished, invariably the student will have built a relationship. It's not always the case, but way more often than not, that is the case. But in that instance, the student knows that they're there for an internship. They're not there to build a career. And as I said, it's very hard to get noticed um, and to understand the culture of Mm -hmm. an organization. If you've got no personal connection or relationship to uh, anybody in the company. Again, that totally makes sense to me. I'm just glad that these kids are are getting a chance to be exposed to that. What it means to be part of a uh, a work team and getting at least to look at that and see what it's like. Uh, I think it's really uh, extremely important. Can um, I could I tell you one, yeah. if, if I may, one amazing story? So. This took place during the pandemic, and um, we sent uh, we set up uh, a young lady uh, from a, a public school in, in the Bronx um, with a private equity company. And um, shortly after she joined, it was uh, I was asked, "Oh, am I allowed to pay this mentor because uh, sorry, this mentee because I really want to include her in what we're doing?" Anyway, every Monday. Um, they have uh, this private equity company have a meeting and you're not allowed to arrive at the meeting unless you've got an idea, an idea for uh, an investment or for an industry that they should be looking at. And he said to the young lady, listen, the first week you can just listen in. But by the second week, I expect you to come with an idea. So uh, they happen to be specialists in in, uh, women's healthcare. And he said, well, which company should we buy? And this is before the big meeting. She said, oh, we should buy L'Oreal. He says, no, 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 we can't buy L'Oreal. He said, think of a product that all your friends use and which um, it would be a company, and then go and find a company that we could invest in. And she said, well, all my friends use hairnets. So um, he said, well, go off and find a company. So she went off and found a company, which was uh, actually founded by two women of color who um, – had started this business and it was doing very well. And he said, well, get in touch with them and see what, what if they're interested in some investment. And it just so happened that they were doing an investment round. And then um, he, she brought it to the meeting in front of all these very high-powered 
uh, hedge fund uh, private equity uh, executives told her about the firm, told her about the products, told them about the growth, sorry. And they said, oh, my gosh, this sounds fantastic. And they entered into due diligence uh, with a view to investing in that company. Uh, and that due diligence still continues uh, right now. And um, if it comes off, she will be in line for a, a significant bonus, which That's would go true. into an educational trust. So yeah. um, one thing I ought to have told you is that because our, the, the, our students weren't paid, um, didn't have a paid job uh, during the pandemic, we paid them up to $500 each depending on their participation and attendance and punctuality and involvement and engagement with our training sessions. So they did get, all of them got something at the end. And I think the average payout was over $490. So that gives you a, a, an indication of just how committed the students were. That's terrific. Do you keep track of what happens to your kids and where they go, what they do? Um, is there a formal mechanism for that or is it sort of ad hoc? Uh, we, it used to be ad hoc, but we have been uh, developing uh, a really robust alumni program, which begins, as I said, with some of the um, relationships immediately after the internship, you know, SAT prep, as I said, with Columbia, um, but also extensive training in Python and uh, we have a, uh, an Excel boot camp. Um, and then companies come back to us and say, hey, we're looking for interns at this level, um, uh, this stage of their education. And then this continues into college. Uh, we're always doing more work, more work panels, more skills training. And we've now created a, a password protected job center where companies uh, can put up openings that they have. They know if they um, work with one of our students, they will be well-trained. Um, they'll be hungry and inquisitive students. And so we've begun the process of uh, actually linking those um, graduates, uh, college graduates, and also uh, students between their junior and senior year when, you know, most internships that lead to full employment take place. So um, in terms of keeping track, we absolutely do. Um, we've tried to create a sort of esprit de corps uh, amongst our our alumni so that they can call upon one another for help. So, uh, you know, in the dream world, um, one of our graduates uh, or alumni, sorry, will have got through college, uh, started their career, and themselves become a mentor to one of our students. Uh, we also have instances where, or many instances where, our alumni are, you know, um, first, second or third year at college. And then a new kid is thinking about a college and they get the chance to call them and say, hey, you know, what's it like at that college? What's it like being a person of color at that college? Am I going to feel out of place? Uh, are there support mechanisms? And so uh, more and more as we have evolved and we've as we've developed, um, the uh, it's the post internship component which is becoming more and more important terrific that's that's great a program like this is not just about a job it potentially has a you know profound impact on all aspects of the life of the person who is participating so talk to us about 
how um, what kind of what kind of uh, unexpected sort of spinoff benefits um, do you see happening in the lives of your participants as a result of being part of this program? Well, I never like to uh, lay any claim to uh, a student's success in getting into a particular college, but um, a significant, well, 15 to 20% of our students go to Ivy League schools, 60% go to top 50 colleges, uh, and in many instances, they attend those colleges uh, because of the confidence they built during their uh, relationship with First Workings and um, because of recommendations, letters of recommendations and personal connections from the person that they're dealing with and those colleges. The other positive is that not only do students um, see, uh, find job um, industries and job functions that they didn't even know existed uh, and industries that they didn't know existed and opportunities that they didn't know existed, they, are, they sometimes find about things that they don't want to do. So, I mean, one of our best uh, or brightest students, I should say, um, who is at Yale today, did an internship at an investment bank uh, and said, you know what I learned? I learned that I don't want to work in an investment bank. (laughs) (laughs) That's an important thing to know. It really is. um, That is an important thing to know. Really, it's one of the most, I guess, tangible benefits is broadening horizons. Uh, of, um, you know, a kid who's a very strong in STEM um, would normally say, okay, well, you know, I need to go become an engineer or I, I should go into the medical field. And, you know, one of the things that's different about Wall Street today compared to my day uh, is that numeracy skills are so much more highly valued than they used to be. Today, traders are competing with algorithms algorithmic trading engines um, and with super quant computers. And if you have the ability to think uh, on your feet very quickly uh, or you're very strong in computer uh, software writing uh, or understanding uh, Python and and various different uh, different programs, um, you're just the sort of candidate that modern uh, trading uh, trading rooms on Wall Street, not just investment banks, but in all the major banks, you're just the sort of person that they're looking for. And had you not had, had the student not had the experience of working with us, they simply wouldn't have known that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, many of the students we work with are, their parents were, uh, were immigrants. And um, it's typical that their families say, hey, you know, we want you to be a doctor. Because it's a very transportable skill. You know, if you've had to leave somewhere quickly and you think that one day you may have to leave here quickly, uh, a, a skill that you can take anywhere in the world is being a doctor. And so um, I would say the largest, uh, uh, we ask students to say, hey, you know, what's, what's your interest? Uh, what's your career interest? And I would say uh, more than half uh, express an interest in, in the medical world. And so we feel that uh, part of our role is to introduce them to other areas mm-hmm. where those skills can be valued. You know, digital marketing. I mean, it isn't just Wall Street. Um, you know, more and more of our uh, students are now going uh, in technology internships who would ordinarily have gone into the medical profession. I mean, we do send a lot of kids to institutions like Mount Sinai and Lenox Hill and various different specialist uh, 
specialists in the medical field. Um, but many of the students that, that go into uh, other, other professions didn't start out with that as an interest. And we already have a number of students who've been through our program, were introduced at, in particular to finance, who've ended up either going back to the company that they work for or to that industry. Uh, only uh, a month ago, one of our students um, was uh, one of our alumni who graduated from Brown, um, was uh, offered a job by the uh, energy trading company he'd interned at through us, who happened to have moved to Florida during the pandemic. And he finds himself you know, moving from Rhode Island uh, down to Florida, where he started his job a few weeks ago, uh, and where he's going gangbusters. What strikes me about all of that is thinking about your own, the experience that you described at the beginning of this about, you know, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm selling menswear. I'm not really excited about that. And then I walk into the maelstrom of the, you know, of the trading floor in Chicago and that immediate understanding that this is actually what I really excites me and I could be really good at, or at least that intuition. It's really a nice connection to, you know, for you to be thinking about giving students a version of that, uh, an opportunity to experience a version of that where they, you know, they're, they're sort of being pushed in one direction or, uh, or they've, they've built kind of a limitation around themselves as to what they might be able to do, exposing them to a bunch of different kinds of, or a, a new kind of work, uh, a new opportunity, and them really sort of grabbing onto that. I just, it's just very exciting way of thinking about um, the question of vocation and how people find their vocations in life. The, the thing that they're really built to do requires kind of this, this diversity of experience. There's no question about that. Um, you know, also, if you're dealing, if you're a customer facing person, uh, you have to be interested. You have yeah. to have something to say. And uh, uh, people who come from the communities we, we, um, we work with, um, they have different experiences. They have different stories to tell. Um, mm -hmm. They're more interesting than just a sort of cookie cutter white guy from the Upper East Side who went to private school and one of 12 colleges um, who pretty much all got the same story. Right. Um, and you know, the other thing to bear in mind is that it won't be long till about 40% of the workforce are of color, um, either black or Latinx. Um, uh, or, or Asian, and um, the companies need to be prepared. Um, uh, they need to understand that their customers are going to have that demographic. And so they need to make sure that their workforce is too. And so working with people like us gives them the chance to have access to a community that they really don't have access to at all today. So I guess you could say that we're a bridge between uh, companies who are seeking diversity and students who are seeking opportunity. I mean, that would be the best way to put it. And along the way, they do get mentors and mentors are critical to success. I wouldn't say that everyone has to have a mentor to be successful. That would be silly to say that. But I would say that um, having a mentor makes an enormous difference. 
uh, to your choice. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's silly at all. And I think that we don't often even recognize that the people who serve as mentors to us are doing that. You know, often it is a friendship. It's a, you know, a, somebody who's taken a special interest in us as people that wind up performing that role. In fact, I don't think there is, uh, you know, very rarely is there ever a, you know, a person who experiences sort of flourishing and, and a success in life that doesn't look back and say, without that person, you know, or those people, I wouldn't have ever gotten to where I am. So, yeah, I, I we may not call it mentoring, but I think everybody, uh, just about everybody who, you know, experiences that kind of flourishing, um, it, it almost always depends on the inputs, uh, mentoring inputs, whether they're recognized as such or not. Um, so tell me where, where you see the organization headed. How can people learn more about you and what you're working on? What's the plan for First Workings? Well, the plan is to um, more develop our alumni networks and offerings to um, be in a position to provide um, job opportunities to kids literally from the summer after they work with us all the way through college uh, and hopefully beyond that um, to really flesh out um, our training offerings um, so that uh, um, alumni feel comfortable uh, staying connected with us, see a value in staying connected with us. Um, and as I said before, uh, themselves one day becoming mentors or advisors uh, to new students starting out. Um, at some point, we will, develop, we will uh, open up in other cities. But as I said, we only work with 13 schools in, in, uh, in New York. And there's many, many more schools for us to uh, build relationships with uh, before we expand out the city. Uh, having said that, just before the pandemic, we were in the process of um, starting up in L.A. Um, I have a personal connection to uh, um, also a former Wall Street uh, person who is now um, building charter schools uh, all over L.A. County. <clears throat> and um, I also have quite a lot of personal connections in that city. And so we were literally um, looking for space, actually. Uh, and that all got put on ice during the pandemic. Um, some former colleagues of mine are creating a very similar uh, organization in the UK. So I, I, I would say that we probably still got a good three or four more years uh, till we've um, got to where we need to be in New York. Uh, and then we intend to expand. The next uh, place in the United States will probably be L.A., but also Chicago, where it won't surprise you that I have um, enormous connections because uh, at one point we were the largest employer in the futures industry in Chicago, uh, and we dealt with a whole bunch of different people, you know, not just financial people, but people in the food industry, uh, in the logistics industry, and all different kinds of industries. Um, and so um, I and my former colleagues have an, an enormous networks, uh, or, or should I say social capital, um, which they can themselves um, give to young people 
who come from a less uh, advantaged uh, background than they themselves do. That's terrific. We will uh, include in the show notes, of course, oh, I, information. Uh, go ahead. Sorry. I, I apologize. I ought to have said, and um, I really should do this, uh, that to, to find out more about First Workings, our, our website is firstworkings.org. Um, and you can learn all about what we do, about some of our students and some of the programs we have, and some of the opportunities for people to become mentors, uh, to participate in industry panels. Uh, and obviously to provide internships as well. That's terrific. Well, uh, Kevin, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and more importantly, thank you for um, your vision in establishing First Workings, the kinds of opportunities it's providing for uh, talented people who just need some help with access. Um, and uh, I, I really do congratulate you and I look forward to hearing more about the progress of your work. So again, thanks for coming on Hardly Working and we will try to get you back on again uh, sometime in the future when to get an update on your progress. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.